Let's pray, and we'll begin our time in the Word. Father, we do ask now that you would give us understanding, uh, that you would help us now as we consider your Word, that we would hear from you, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak into our lives. God, not that we would just hear and understand, but Lord, that our hearts would be changed and transformed, that Lord, that we would reflect you your character, your glory, all the more because of what we've heard and encountered today. So, Lord, would you do your work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we have been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we know that from last week's message, we, we confronted, well, we didn't confront, but Jesus and the Pharisees had a confrontation. Uh, the Pharisees came to confront Jesus and all of the issues that, that they were concerned about were related to the, the issue of defilement and ritual purity. We talked about that last week, how Jesus comes along and says, actually, defilement and ritual purity is not a matter of external things, but rather in a matter of the heart. And so unless your heart is changed, you cannot do anything externally to make yourself better. And so that's exactly the point that Jesus made. And so uh, to the Pharisee, though, when they, when they thought about defilements, there was nothing more defiled than a Gentile, us. And that's exactly where Jesus heads next in our text this morning, is into Gentile territory where he encounters a Gentile woman. To the Pharisees, she would have been considered unclean. Yet Jesus, when he encountered her, in fact, ultimately commended her for being a woman of great faith. Remember not too long ago as we considered Peter, Jesus told him he was a man of little faith. But now this Gentile woman, as Jesus encounters her, he sees her quite differently than the Pharisees would have saw her. He sees her as a woman, as, as a woman of great faith. It was Charles Spurgeon that once said to the believer, faith is of the utmost importance. He should endeavor not to lose any of his divine graces. He should seek by the power of the blessed spirit neither to lose patience nor hope nor love nor any other grace or virtue. But still the root of true religion is faith. So he must first of all see to that. If we fail in faith, we shall fail in everything. If we fail in faith, we shall fail in everything. As we consider our text this morning, verses 21 through 31, especially verses 21 through 28, Jesus responds to this woman. Ultimately, in verse 20, 28, as a woman of great faith. As we consider what leads up to this, this announcement, this, this, uh, this characterization of her having great faith, we need to understand why he said that. Therefore, we need to understand what, what constitutes a person who is a person of great faith. What are the marks of great faith? How do we understand it to look like, as illustrated in this Canaanite woman? Well, I want us to look at four particular aspects of great faith from this passage. As we consider these four, I want us to be challenged in our hearts by the grace of God. We, we would e examine our own hearts to see whether or not we would be people of faith, people of great faith, people maybe like Peter of little faith that need greater faith, encouragement in our faith, or are we a people who have no faith at all? Four marks of great faith. Number one, great faith knows no boundary. For someone to have great faith, faith itself as a 
as, a, as an object, if you will, faith as a subject, as a, as a topic, it knows no boundary. And that is illustrated most prominently in this lady who comes along and encounters Jesus. In fact, when we read this encounter, it's, it's kind of a shocking encounter. It really is. It's a shocking encounter because it, it goes far to, to, to inform us about several things, but especially our understanding of Jesus' mission. Earlier in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he emphasized that their target originally, Matthew 10, was Jewish. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Matthew 10. He tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost house of the sheep, the, the sheep of the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even here in Matthew, in this particular text, he, he says in verse 24 to her, to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He reaffirms that in essence. However, what you see here, I think what you see actually in Matthew 10 as well, and especially in verse 18 I think, um, at least implied there, is you begin to see a turning point, not in Jesus' mind, but in his strategy, in his endeavor and to advance his gospel. He came now to the Jewish people to invest into them, and now that's going to take a ripple effect, make a ripple effect and impact among the Gentiles. And I think that Matthew chapter 15 is a hinge, a turning point in the earthly ministry of Jesus where you see that that is now intentionally pursued. In fact, he makes his way to this region of Tyre and Sidon close to the coast, Mediterranean Sea. And this was largely Gentile territory. We get glimpses of this Gentile mission all the way throughout the Gospel of Matthew and this turning point now. And we ultimately realize that that is indeed the case when we get to Matthew 28 when he says, go and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I want us to consider this woman for a moment. Because when you think about this unnamed Canaanite woman, Gentile, from the Jewish mind, everything was wrong about her. Everything. But I want you to look at her and even the, what I would call the, the obstacles her faith had to overcome to be demonstrated as genuine, great faith that Jesus affirms. She had several obstacles that she had to overcome, that her faith had to overcome. One was cultural. One of the first things that, that we observe about this particular individual as they encounter Jesus is that she is a woman. And in that day and time, we know that, that culturally speaking, women were not viewed and valued as, as, as equals with men. It's a sad reality, but that was the case in that day and time. They were often viewed as second-class citizens, and, and that is something that we need to consider for this passage. Women did not enjoy the freedoms that they do today, and they were often considered in second-class citizens. And it wasn't necessarily culturally appropriate even for a woman to approach Jesus in this manner, yet her faith led her beyond that cultural barrier, cultural barrier that Jesus affirms. We know that there are many cultural barriers to the gospel today. 
Yet this encounter demonstrates that the gospel transcends cultural barriers. We know that when you read the, the, the New Testament letters, for example, Galatians chapter 3, we read in verse 27, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's in essence saying cultural, ethnic, all barriers have been abolished by the power of the gospel. If you're in Christ, you're one in Christ. And yet this woman faced a, a, an imposed barrier upon her in her day and time that her faith pushed through and beyond so that she could encounter the saving work of Christ. Cultural barriers still exist today, and we could go on and on about those type barriers. Another barrier was an ethnic barrier. I think even more significant than her sex, the fact that she was a female, was her ethnic background. She was a Gentile. But not only she was, a, was she a Gentile, she was a Canaanite Gentile. I mean, if it was bad enough that she was a Gentile, she was Canaanite. And Matthew uses that verbiage there, that terminology, to maximize the particular person that Jesus was dealing with. This was a Canaanite. Canaanite. We know that the term is used to identify the people in the Old Testament as those enemies of Israel. And so this woman was a descendant of a pagan people that God had commanded Israel to conquer and destroy. And so if, if you were a Jew and if you were a Pharisee especially, when you consider defilement or the definition of defilement, this woman would have been beyond defiled culturally. Ethnically? I mean, we need to also remember the setting. It, it wasn't as if Jesus haphazardly met this woman on the way to Jerusalem in the center of, of Jewish culture and heritage. He's not even there. He's entire inside. He's in large, dominated Gentile territory where he encounters this woman. He traveled there. Her ethnicity was a barrier of sorts. Not in a positive way, because of the long-standing hatred of Jews and Gentiles. But she, by the grace of God, would not allow that barrier to stand. I love what the Bishop J.C. Ryle said. He put it beautifully. He said, it's grace, not place, which makes people believe. And to quote Lig Duncan, he said that, uh, he said that she may have been from the wrong side of the tracks ethnically and religiously, but God drew her to himself. You see, faith knows no boundary. We can pop up all kinds of boundaries, and we do. We can pop up cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries, economic boundaries. You just name the boundary, and they get popped up all over the place. But what we're being told here in the encounter with this woman is that Jesus is saying, faith knows no boundary. You can't hedge it in. It's good for the Jew, it's good for the Gentile, it's good for men, it's good for women, it's good for all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks all boundaries, period. The Lord is drawing all peoples to himself. And friends, that ought to be reflected even in how we consider ministry. Even in how we consider our church and how we approach ministry. You know, when you, when you think about and there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to talk about when you think of, of events like Ferguson, Missouri. 
And I don't mention that just to, to, to cause yet another stirring discussion, but what I want us to do and what I want us to think about is what the gospel response to that should be. But when you think about just the, the dynamics that have created that, that, that horrible situation in our nation, it's a reminder that there are still all kinds of cultural, ethnic barriers and boundaries that, that, that have been imposed upon us from, from people of all, all walks of life. For us to sit back and simply ignore that boundaries exist would be foolish and downright ignorant. We can't ignore that. We have to acknowledge, yes, they exist, but at the same time, it should not stop us. It didn't stop Jesus. He was full aware, full aware that there were cultural, ethnic barriers that existed in his day and time and in a way that was on steroids. For him to go to Tyre and Sidon and to encounter this Canaanite Gentile woman was, was way out of bounds in the Jewish mind. Friends, regardless of the barriers that exist, and there are many. By God's grace, we must push through those barriers. By God's power, we must press through those barriers because God is glorified when we do that. He did not create a kingdom that is just made up of this kind of people and that kind of people, and he's happy just with that. He has told us time and time again that he loves all peoples. And I think that what we see here, I think, although it's a secondary point, that, but it's a clear point that's being made, is that the characterization of Jesus' ministry is one that understood that faith knew no boundaries, and he was willing to do whatever it ta- took, even at the risk of his own character, to press through those boundaries. It's one of the things that our nation needs, and ultimately all nations need, is the body of Christ willing to speak the gospel into all circumstances, all discussions, all issues, that our churches would be shaped, that our churches would invest in communities regardless of the barriers that exist, and there are barriers. The third one would be economic barriers. I think it's a big barrier. We have no way of knowing, just on this text, what the economic conditions were of this woman and her family. Some say that actually she was a well-to-do woman. Some, some say no, because she was a woman, she would have been more, more suppressed and not as well off. Either way, the point is the same, isn't it? Whether she was well off or not, Jesus is, is saying there's no, there's no barrier, there's no boundary. Faith knows no economic, no cultural, no, no ethnic boundary. Whether rich or poor, middle class, the gospel is good for all. You know, one of the things that as I was thinking about this passage, I was walking through this passage, observing how Jesus interacted with this woman, and we're going to get to the harder things in just a minute. But I couldn't, couldn't help but think that, that implied and embedded in this is, is a model for ministry. I mean, there, there's some profound observations here that should inform us in how we as the church and as Christians ought to approach ministry individually as we go about our ways and corporately as a church. Friends, listen, you, you read the disciples here. Verse 22, a, a 
A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This woman was, was at her wit's end. She was grieving. She was, she was broken. And Jesus, remaining silent for a moment, in verse 23, but not his disciples. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. These were Jesus' disciples. Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Friends, if I have to be honest, I think that we are too eager to be like the disciples here than we are Jesus. It is often easier for us to say in so many words, go away or turn a blind eye, than it is to truly engage people in the hard places. We need to see through the lens of Christ. And Jesus is setting up this conversation, I believe, on purpose to teach a profound lesson. Listen, let me just speak pastorally for a minute. Not as I haven't been, but we have a responsibility to invest the gospel in our community and ultimately a responsibility to reach the ends of the earth. It's a massive responsibility. And one of the reasons that this campus was originally planted back in 2010 was not out of convenience for you who live down here to attend church. That was not the reason, ultimate reason. We plant a campus so that our members can have a quicker place to get to church. Now, for some of you, it just happened to work out that way. That was not the motivation. The motivation was that this campus would be planted here as an extension of the church to invest in this community. That's why it was planted here. Now, I've been here a little over three years now, and, and we have seen the church grow. We have. I think I came, it was 120, 130-ish. On a good Sunday now, we're 2, 210. Praise God for that. But let me just say this, and I want you to hear me carefully. Most of our growth, if not the vast majority of our growth, has not been from us reaching the community. It hasn't. Now, I'm grateful. For, I'm grateful for you who have come, maybe from other churches, maybe even from the Leonardtown campus, who want to really invest in this church. I'm grateful for that. I came from another church a little further down the road. I am. I'm truly grateful for that. But, but when I, I was just telling this to somebody this past week, when I truly look at whether or not we're being effective in our community, I have to say that we're not being effective in our community. You may disagree with me, but I don't think we're doing a good job at all. And you know the, where that starts? It starts right here with me. It starts right here with me because I realize that we've been busy with many good things. But we can be busy with many good things and neglect bigger things. And I think one of the things that we have to get on board with moving forward as a church and as a congregation is that we truly, if we claim to follow Jesus and if we really want to exist as the body of Christ and, in, and invest in our community, we're going to have to do the hard work that it takes and truly invest in this community to see the gospel reach people of all ethnicities, of all cultural backgrounds, of every race, of every economic status, of every barrier that you want to put up. We want to blow that to pieces. And we can't do that on our own. We need the Spirit of God. 
And so while I think that we have not done a real good job at all of reaching our community, by God's grace, we've, we've seen our numbers increase. But that's not always indicative of a church that is truly engaging people with the gospel. We must see more people come to Christ. We must be willing to, to step across the street and to step across the, the cubicle at work or wherever it is that you live or wherever it is that you're investing. We must be willing to do the hard things that it takes to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is setting up, this, this mission that he was about, even here in our text. Friends, it's faith knows no boundary, whether it's white and black, rich or poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, we must be willing to cross every barrier that our culture has created and by the power of God see people one with the gospel. Paul said it in Romans 1.14. He says this, he says, I am under obligation. Friends, do you see this as an obligation? Or a mere option. Paul said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Jesus is teaching us in this encounter with this woman that all people matter, period. Faith knows no boundary. Number two, faith has a certain object. Notice when the woman comes to Jesus and cries out, she cries out, O Lord, son of David. That's pretty significant. You have a Canaanite Gentile. I don't know if that's proper, proper verbiage, but that's what we're calling her. She's a Canaanite Gentile. She, in the Jewish mind, was the worst of worse. Worst of worse. She was not good. In their eyes, she was, she was not viewed that way, not valued in that way, although Jesus valued her, certainly. And she responds by referring to him as the son of David. She's not Jewish. There's one thing this woman knows well. She has a real need. She is hurting. And she goes to the only one source that can meet that need. And that is significant because she was reared, raised, influenced in an idolatrous pagan culture. And she now turns her back from that to Christ. Friends, if our faith is going to be classified as great, then it must have the right object. It would be quite foolish for her or for us to put our faith in something or something nothing about. That would be called blind faith. Now listen, you know, if you, were, if you were to go skydiving, you know, you're going, you're not an expert skydiver. Anybody ever been skydiving? No one? We're going to have to do a church trip somewhere. One person. Okay. And you're in that plane, and you know how they normally do? They strap you to the instructor. That would be awkward, but anyway, that's another story. They strap you to the instructor, and you get to the, get to the door of the plane, and he says, oh, by the way, let's take all of this off, and I want you to jump, no parachute, and just, just trust that you'll land safely. Now, how many of you would jump? I wouldn't think any of us would jump. 
I wouldn't think. No one would jump. It would be absolutely foolish to, to plunge out of a plane with, with no object, with no, no safety nets. And yet I hear people all of the time just talking about faith as if, faith in what? Christ is the only faith that matters. The only faith that, that informs all other belief. Christian faith is not a religion of blind faith. Our faith has an object, and that object is the Lord Jesus. We must get that right. Number three, great faith is accompanied by certain qualities. You know, some people like to point to Jesus' response and either condemn him as a chauvinist or discount the text as legitimate because Jesus would not have responded this way. That's what done with. But we look at this passage, and we want to learn from it because it's God's word. Uh, you know, after, after Jesus sees that she will not give up, look, look at with me. The disciples foolishly respond, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, when she comes and cries, Lord, help me. We know that he responds what we would consider kind of harshly. That's why I say this passage is a bit shocking. Jesus just said that to her. First he ignores her, and now he in essence, calls her a dog. What do you do with that? Why does he say this? Well, I think, number one, many things going into this, number one, he's, he's mirroring the common way Jews and even his disciples at this point thought about the Gentiles. And he uses their own terms largely, I believe, as a shock factor for their sake. He wants them to see their, the, the, the ungodliness of their own hearts. And he's preparing them all for what's going to happen in verse 28. Jesus, was, Jesus knew all along this was a woman of great faith. In essence, Jesus is maximizing the situation so that the response of verse 28 makes a profound and lasting impact upon his disciples and upon this lady. He commends her for having a great faith. Compare that again to the little faith of Peter previously. A Jew, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, little faith, a pagan, Canaanite, Gentile, idolatry, a woman of great faith. Several qualities about this faith. I'll go quickly. Number one, it's repentant faith. This woman's response to Jesus is one that's hard to forget. She does not grow offended. She does not slap Jesus in the face and walk away. She says, when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, she comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. And he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
as a Canaanite, this woman had worshipped idols. And now she was laying aside those idols, knowing that she was unworthy of Christ. She was a sinner. She knew who she was. And she still seeks him for mercy. And it's in this response that she is showing a heart that recognizes her true status and condition, not as a Gentile, but as a sinner. And pleads for Christ's help in spite of her cultural baggage, in spite of her ethnic heritage, in spite of whatever barriers that would exist. She presses on turning from a life of idolatry to place her faith and trust in Christ. Again, to quote Spurgeon, he said, Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. All the while that we walk by faith and not by sight, the tear, I love this, the tear of repentance glitters the eye of faith. True faith not only turns to Christ, but it turns from sin. It's repentant faith, it's humble faith. Look at this. Notice she responds, before she responds, she, she comes and she kneels. She, she, this is not just a conversation where she's standing up to him face to face. She, she's now kneeling before him, saying, Lord, help me. And after being compared to a dog, she responds in the most humble way. She, from a cultural perspective, embraces her role. Yes, Lord, even the dogs. Even the dogs would like some crumbs if that's all we can carry. She humbly recognized Israel's place and her place as a Gentile. And she knew deep down that nothing about her earned the right for Jesus to listen to her. Nothing about her earned that right. She was crying out for mercy. Friends, nowhere do we see this lady insisting upon the mercy of God. Because she somehow deserved it. She simply acknowledges her status and she cries out for whatever Jesus will give her, even if it's crumbs. And she will be satisfied with that. Friends, a great faith first recognizes our status before a holy God. Jew or Gentile, we are all unworthy. We are all sinners. She knew that she was not worthy in herself, but humbled herself before the one who was worthy alone. Only Christ was worthy. She was not worthy. And friends, that's, that's quite different from how many people respond to Jesus today. Many, many people often approach him as if we have earned the right for mercy or as if somehow we deserve his response. This entire scene really lays a blow at our understanding of justice. This pagan woman had a correct theology of sin. She understood who she was. She understood where she came from. She understood that she did not deserve anything. But even for a crumb, for a crumb, she was willing to lay down everything and in faith trust Christ. Humble faith. Number three, it's persistent faith. 
woman is best known for her persistent faith. She, she didn't give up when Jesus did not first respond, and she did not grow bitter or angry when Jesus, using cultural terminology, refers to her as a dog. It's important, by the way, that that term dog that Jesus uses is not the same term for some ravenous wild animal, but rather a, a term for a household pet. So it was a little softer of a term that the Jews versus what the Jews would typically use. So he, he softens the term, but, but nonetheless, even if you're a, a, a household pet, you still don't want to be called a dog. So even though it's a softer term, he, he still is, is recognizing, at least through the lens of cultural perception and perspective, for the sake of his disciples, I think, to teach them a very important lesson that she does matter. She's not a dog. That she matters very much to Christ. She wouldn't give up, even in the midst of that. Her faith led her to persevere in pleading for a few crumbs rather than none at all. Friends, this persistent faith is a great testimony to the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus alone is sufficient. Jesus alone is all that we need. Persistent faith is a great testimony to that. You could go to other passages. Luke 18, the persistent widow who would not, would not give up. A great faith does not give up because it realizes that Jesus alone has the answer to our greatest needs. And that's what marks her faith as great, is that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of everything that could be wrong, she persevered to lay hold of Christ until he responded. The last point to, to note would be that a great faith enjoys a lasting reward. Again, this woman had every barrier that you could come up with. She faced cultural, ethnic barriers, being a woman and a Gentile. And Jesus, for a moment, magnifies those barriers. He, he does that on purpose. He, he magnifies those barriers to, to make the situation more intense. I think, for the sake of his disciples, to teach them a very valuable lesson and to magnify her faith for what it was. But in faith, she persevered until Christ answered her plea, and he does. Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The demon was gone. Friends, this does not teach us that God is obligated to give us whatever we want as long as we ask nicely and are persistent. Jesus will often refuse our requests especially when we ask wrongly or with wrong motives. But when we, for the right reasons and with the right motives, seek him, he will answer. Sometimes immediately and sometimes not, but he will listen and he will answer. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The irony of this is that it was people like the Pharisees that had now grown to a point where it was almost impossible for them to please Christ. But this precious lady living in a pagan culture, despised by the Jews, is elevated as one who had great faith. And she pleased Christ. Friends, without faith, you will not please God. So don't get the order wrong. Don't try to be like Pharisees and clean up everything on the outside and try to somehow please God through your external rituals. But be men and women, boys and girls, who trust Christ from the heart. Who look to him. Who see yourself for what you truly are. We're no different than this woman. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. But she was one who pleased Jesus through her faith. Friends, what about you? Do you seek to try to please Jesus by the things that you do only? And certainly there are things that we do that please Jesus. Or is that spurred ultimately by your faith? Have you placed your hope in Christ and in Him alone? Cried out to Him for mercy. Without faith, you will not please Him. Friends, let's remember, through the lens of this Canaanite woman, through the picture that we have painted for us here, that faith knows no boundary. Faith knows no boundary. Faith must have the right object, and Christ is the object. He's not a object, He's the object. Faith must have that correctly. Faith has these characteristics that are, are, are marked by humility and persistence and even with repentance. And when we trust in Christ, there will be reward. Friends, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Do you want to please Christ? Do you want to please Christ? Then trust Him. And allow that faith to then be informed and transformed so that you begin living a life that reflects the truth of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the Bible says clearly without faith it is impossible to please you. And Lord, we know that even in these encounters that Jesus has had with his disciples in the boat with Peter, Started out well with faith, but yet ended poorly in that account. As a man of little faith, we, we've seen the Pharisees who are religious leaders with no faith. It was all works. And then this woman, well, she had no works to offer. She had nothing to give. She had no righteousness of her own to claim. The only thing that she had was Christ. And that is where her faith rested. And so, Lord, I pray for these gathered in this room, Lord, that our faith would have found its resting place in Christ and in Him alone. And if it hasn't, Lord, if there are people in this room that have not trusted, not believed, not given over their hope to Christ, Lord, would you move in their hearts even now? Would you cause them, Lord, to, to see Christ as their only hope? 
their only treasure, would you grant them faith that they need, faith that pleases you. Father, would you help us to be a congregation marked by a people of faith, willing to make known Christ and call others to this same faith. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, you know, you know where we stand before you even now. Lord, you know if there are people in this room who are marked by great faith or little faith or no faith at all. Lord, would you work? Would you work in those hearts and cause their eyes to see and faith to come alive? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.